You're listening to Solar Insiders, a fortnightly update on the ins and the outs of the solar industry and what it means for solar owners and industry. With Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading solar industry veteran Nigel Morris. Solar Insiders is brought to you by Clanergy, providers of innovative, high-quality solar solutions to the world. SunWiz, Australia's leading service provider to the solar and storage industry. And Solar Analytics, helping you get more from your solar, more confidence, more savings and more insights. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Solar Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and its associated websites. One step off the grid and the EV focused, the driven. And joining me as usual is Nigel Morris from Solar Analytics. Nigel, I trust you are well, been visiting grandchildren and things. Oh, very well, very well. And I have to say, Giles, uh, you know, your reputation is reaching far-flung places. My 14-year-old my son had uh, someone in the schoolyard come up to him the other day and say, hey, your last name's Morris. You've talked about solar. Is your dad Nigel Morris? And does he does do that podcast with Giles Parkinson every, every fortnight? Because I, my dad listens to that and he reckons it's the best podcast in Australia. So the 14-year-olds of Balgala High are onto us, mate. Fantastic, fantastic. How many people does that take our audience up to? It must be, must, must be five or six. Oh, no, no, no. no. There's, there's thousands at the school. So if, you know, if we just lump all them in, it's like it's a million kids, I think, based on lunchtimes. Oh, that's fantastic. It must be compulsory viewing in, 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 in one of those courses there. It must be geography or something like that. Latin, maybe. Latin. Something good. But I thought that was that's lovely. Great. It is very nice. It is very nice. Yeah. Look, and a happy birthday to your one-year-old grandson too, and, and happy seven-month, no, seven-week-old to my first grandson too, which is just as exciting. So, oh, um, to all yes. the to all the fat, healthy babies, we to salute you. Healthy babies, absolutely. <laughs> and thank you for taking our mind off work when we're holding you in our arms. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but look, back to the job in hand, um, Nigel. Um, being a fairly big couple of weeks in the energy industry here we had the um we had the climate bill go through the house of representatives at least 43 percent target legislated not that it really needed to be but i guess it's nice and symbolic that it is and send some sort of signal out there to to people that um australia is open for business um and um then last week even more importantly the energy ministers decided to put environment back into the national Electricity market rules. I mean, they should have been there in the first place, but better late than never, I suppose. Well, in, in, in fact, back into, I don't, I don't think they've ever really been in there, Giles, have they? And Well, there was, they were supposed to be in there when the national electricity rules were drawn up in the late 1990s. They were going to be in there. Environment formed part of the national electricity objective. And guess who pulled them out at the insistence of what was then known as the, the, the Greenhouse Mafia, basically the fossil fuel lobby group, was John Howard's government. And basically there's no real reason to do it. They pulled it out. Um, there was various efforts by people like Christine Milne and um, Victorian Minister Lily D'Ambrosio and other people to try and put them back in there, but the coalition refused. And it's basically hamstrung. Uh, nearly every regulatory and many investment decisions ever since because we've just been reduced to this sort of economic rational approach about, you know, oh, what efficiency and, and money and uh, bugger the environment and bugger the, um, the goal of reducing emissions. That's, yeah, that's how I read it too. So, I mean, it was a small announcement, but I have to say, I mean, quoting 
Chris Bowen. He said, this might not sound much, but it's the first change in the national energy objectives in 15 years. And I have to say, it's one of those things that just kind of happens. And, and you, you covered it widely in multiple stories. But this is actually huge because for the first time, the impact of energy is now embedded in the objectives of the national electricity market. And, and as you say, they were supposed to be in there. They got squeezed out at the last moment and it made it too, all too easy to say, well, emissions don't matter. So the, I, I'm really quite excited about this and the other statements that have been made in the last few weeks because it shows this real fundamental shift in the attitude towards what's going on in the energy market. and. Um, it might look like box ticking, but you know these these changes really can have really profound implications. So um, I was quite excited. Yeah. Well, and so you should be, Nigel, and so you should be. Look, it has implications. Look, it's, it's influenced decisions on um, a lot of the regulatory investments. So when a regulator approves something, so basically all the transmission companies or regulated entities. Um, they only get to invest in something if the regular, regular regulator says yes, you can do that, and then get your money back from um, consumers. Um, so they can only do that with a regulatory approval. And so you know, investment in new networks and things like that, the reduction in emissions and all these other things were just completely ignored. Um, Chris Bone has obviously been reading Renew Economy, as I know he does, um, and cited on Insider's program last week the ridiculous position in uh, Broken Hill where Transgrid was trying to replace two ageing diesel generators. They came up with this really cool storage and microgrid plan which would have underpinned a whole bunch of new mineral provinces and green manufacturing and things like that. And they were told, no, go away, replace those two diesel things with another two diesel things because that's the economic rational thing to do. I mean, bloody stupid, but apparently economic rational. And now we'll be able to sort of ditch all those ridiculous decisions by putting environment and just allowing people to make sensible positions and just sort of say, you know, we, we, we can't live without the environment. Um, we've, we, we've got to be able to reduce emissions. And that's just a start. And, you know, I point out also a lot of the controversy, you know, all the pushback against rooftop solar because, you know, it might not have been economically rational and it might have had this, that and the other impact. Well, we know that rooftop solar, uh, which is huge now, um, has not only just reduced wholesale prices, but has also led to a reduction, significant reduction in emissions. So you factor that into the supposed cost, you know, all the tariffs and all the other sort of subsidies that it's um, so, um, supposed to have gotten, then there is a clear net gain from the policies. Um, once you include um, environment and, um, and emissions. Well, there probably was a clear net gain anyway, but it's even more emphatic once you think of that with broader issues. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. And, and, and <laughs> Sorry, that sounded like, that sounded was, like uh, a rant, Nigel. I just... <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad you did because, you know, this is quite profound. And, and you know, over the years, I've seen this have impacts myself and, uh, you know, in so many different ways, transmission networks, generation projects, all sorts of things where if you just don't have to just don't have to worry about emissions, you can just bypass that. So it's it, I think we're going to we have to let it play out now, but it's going to have to change people's thinking. And, you know, case in point and said, way to our next story you know when you look at what has been projected is going to be needed in Queensland my goodness this starts to become very very important 
Um, yeah, look, I, mean, just, I just want to add one thing on on those two sort of landmark events. You know, you've got the sort of the passage of the, um, the, the bill in Parliament and then you've got this sort of environmental factor. And there was another associated thing too, which happened in the minister's meeting, which was basically sidelining the Energy Security Board, which had basically been sort of captured by certain interests and nobody was really happy about the way that was run and the proposals that they were coming up with, very much sort of legacy ideas and sort of coalition type thought bubbles. So that's been sidelined. And it's just, oh, look, maybe it's kind coincidental but we've just seen in the last week the most extraordinary run of announcements of big projects and look some of them are what you would call braggawatts and things like that people sort of say oh, I'm going to build three gigawatts of this or two gigawatts of that and things like that but it just shows the interest and the excitement and what we're kind of seeing at the moment in Australia is just there's almost this land grab and in the case of offshore wind this sort of sea grab where everyone's coming down and trying to sort of grab a piece of the action and it just shows um, this is actually sort of good. I mean, not all these projects will get built. Maybe only a small part of them will get built. But basically, we've got people coming in, showing interest, wanting to spend money, um, thinking that this is a great market to invest in. And that's fantastic. Um, and that just leads on to what you were then saying about, you know, this report in Queensland, just about the sheer number of jobs that would be created um, from renewable energy projects and particularly the, uh, the hydrogen economy if that takes off. Exactly right. I mean, I, I, I just skimmed over this today and then I stopped and went back and read the whole thing and started digging on it because the, the report that you cite on your, uh, on your story shows that somewhere between 14,000 and 27,000 new jobs will need to be filled to meet the, the demands for renewable energy and hydrogen between now and 2050. Um, but, but what really blew my mind was to meet those targets and, and what will... Um, create those jobs is an astonishing 6.4 gigawatts per year, Giles. That's, you know, double the entire current um, capacity that's going in every year right now. So we're, we're already starting to see, that's, that's the proof, if you like, of what you were talking about, of this sort of renewed enthusiasm for the market. The other thing that struck me uh, that was really interesting about this was that, um, uh, you know, where a lot of these jobs are going to come from are, are regular blue collar jobs. In fact, the largest chunk of all was laborers, right? You just need a lot of people <laughs> to build all these things. And, and you know, laborers, concreters, plant operators, crane drivers, they make up the bulk of demand, which is not only wonderful because it creates lots of jobs and not necessarily hugely skilled jobs, although my, my son-in-law would tell you that a crane driver is a very, very skilled job, um, and, and so it should be. Um, but, but what is great about it is that those jobs are transferable because they're jobs that already exist in other parts of the industry, be they in non-renewable generation or in mining or in other industries that are already out there. So this is the energy jobs transition starting to sh starting to show itself already and and you know goodness gracious 27,000 new jobs it just remarkable numbers remarkable numbers indeed in fact the big problem might actually be trying to fill those damn jobs and finding the people um you know there is a bit of, i think there's a skill shortage i think it's recognized in australia it's very hard to a lot of people a lot of businesses are running short of staff at the moment just can't get can't get um can't get people um i know i've talked to a couple of project developers and they say it's almost impossible to find someone to go on site now i don't know whether it's a result of COVID or people sort of thinking about their rethinking really about their lives but they say that you know so many people now they just basically want to stay 
stay in the home city, go pick up the kids after school and they don't want to be on site and away from the family for a week or two weeks and so they're having to throw up you know, a heap more money at them. Uh, project directors are now getting double what they used to get. Um, and um, just sort of, you know, just actually sort of finding the labour is is hard as well. So look, I mean, I guess that's a good problem to have. Um, it could be slightly inflationary. It could sort of lead to higher costs and therefore sort of higher prices down the track. But um, but it's better than having no jobs at all. Yeah, in, indeed. And and you know, I think we've got a we've got a long way to go as we transi- transition into this. Um, but the, the the good news is it shows that the potential is there, and and as you rightly highlighted in your story, uh, contrary to what uh, Barnaby Joyce has been uh, espousing on a regular basis, you know, um, uh, the growth of renewables and hydrogen doesn't mean job losses; it means a transition in employment and changes and new opportunities. Yeah, yeah. And one one other thing I'd like to mention, and um, I think Angus Gemmell from Solid Choice is going to hate me for saying for mentioning this, but um, it was an interesting, it was an interesting uh, thing that sort of came up um, last week. So, Genex Power, um, who operate two fifty megawatt solar farms and building a battery, a Baldwin battery in Queensland, and a pumped hydro plant in up in the old Kidston gold mine. It's the first pumped hydro plant for about three or four decades in Australia. Pretty interesting stuff. They have become subject of a bid from Scott Farquhar and his wife Kim Jackson. Um, Scott is the co-founder with Mike Cannon-Brooks of Atlassian and um, the fourth richest person in Australia. Mike and, um, I mean, the three richest men in Australia are sort of uh, Andrew Forrest and Mike Cannon-Brooks and then Scott Farquhar and um, uh, all three sort of trail uh, Gina Reinhardt. But, um, and so they've, they've lobbed a bid um, for Gen X Power, which is interesting but disappointing for me because it means another listed company disappearing off the market boards and more, you know, a lack of information. It used to be, you know, it's fantastic when you get a listed company because they actually got to tell people things. And one of the things that Gen X did while they were sort of arguing about this bid was sort of um, buy out um, Bulleye Creek, which is something that um, Angus and his team from Solid Choice um, been, you know, running for about a decade, uh, trying to develop, you know, this massive project. And good on him, he finally found a buyer and stuff like that. And um, it was fantastic. And um, I think he was pretty upset because some of the details of the transaction were um, were actually sort of revealed. Apparently, Genix was forced to by the stock exchange to reveal the details of the transaction. You never see this sort of thing. So it kind of outlined how much Angus got in the actual sale of the project, which is about $5 million, which is probably pretty standard, but also some of the leverage he's got. Like if the project actually gets delivered, then he kind of gets this sort of management fee that's often going, like it's a price per megawatt installed or megawatt hour installed. But... Um, Pretty fantastic. I don't think Angus wanted those details revealed, but it does show um, fantastic reward for you know nearly a decade of just sort of plugging away at a big dream that finally delivered. So so good on him. Oh, that's fa- that's fantastic news because I, I I used to many years ago, uh, right back before even Bulleye Creek, I used to share an office space with Gus, and uh, I saw the work that he put into that. And as you say, you know, a better part of a decade of work to uh, to get that project to where it is. So just reward for um, taking a lot of risk and making a lot of investment along the way and plugging away. That's great news. Yeah, it is. It is, absolutely. And look, um, another thing too that we um, should probably mention because we're talking about Australia and some of the things happening here, um, the US climate bill finally got through as well. So... 
you've got um, you know you've got two big economies or two influential economies America the US and Australia both of whom have been at times fantastic contributors to the international discussions on climate change and at other times depending on their governments you know the worst kind of uh, um, obstructors but um, we are now in a moment of time where both governments um, have legislated uh, targets in the US case it's about a 40% reduction target over 2030 which for a size of the economy of the US is pretty big there's about 370 billion US which is about half a trillion Australian going into the economy into clean energy a lot of it from taxing billionaires and other things should point out that it's probably well short of the Two trillion that uh, Joe Biden wanted to have committed to clean energy out to 2030, but look, it's still a significant step forward, and I think we're going to see big advances, particularly in. Well, look, there's, there's a lot of criticism about the sort of the structure of some of the incentives, and it did get bastardised by this sort of compromise with Joe Manchin, the uh, the coal mine owning or the coal company owning senator from West Virginia. But look, it's um, it's better than nothing. It's significantly better than nothing, and it's probably going to lead to um, you know big advances. You know things like green hydrogen, tax credits there, uh, possibly fuel cells, uh, possibly electric vehicles. Or there's some dis disagreement about that, and the extension of sort of other credits. You know which will boost the um, the solar and the wind industries. Yeah, and I I mean I, I took notice of this one interestingly because they were talking about taxing billionaire companies to fund it, which is a which is a really interesting thing because, you know, when you look at Australia, we've got billionaire companies down here actually like like uh, uh, Mike Cannon-Brooks' company sort of bidding into the space and trying to buy up the problem and trying to solve it themselves, whereas in the US they're having to actually tax them to try and uh, fund the, the clean energy programs. But put, putting that aside, um, I do feel for my all my old US buddies who I've I've you know played in solar with for you know the better part of three decades and this uh, a pendulum of of favour or disdain for renewables and electric vehicles and the transition has has swung clearly yet again uh, and and you know when you look back in time um, I, I remember announcements uh, going back decades where. They talked about incentivising batteries in California, for example, or changing the emission standards, um, again, particularly led by California and, and Arnold Schwarzenegger, Governor Schwarzenegger at the time, to, um, to drive this change and, um, you know, backed by uh, generous funding and support and tax credits and so forth. And those things now are sort of, uh, you know, relegated into history, but they transformed the economy while they were working and they created demand, they created investment they got um, uh, businesses in there and and got one of the biggest booms going in America for renewables and EVs and storage in particular and uh, I remember watching and uh, at presentations in the US when I was visiting of people talking about how they were you know creating new company structures and, and, and new products and new services to service that demand and so you know um, like it or not and 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 you know without didn't get the two trillion that he was hoping to get, um, but undoubtedly this is going to cause that same kind of, um, you know, fundamental shift that we're starting to see in Australia. So good news for what we might see coming in the US. 
And just on the subject of taxing billionaires, and um, I'm not really talking about Mike Karen Brooks and Scott Farquhar and Andrew Forrest here at the, mo at the moment. I'm talk talking about the sort of the billion dollar and the multi-billion dollar and the multi-tens of billion dollars profits, super profits that are being generated by um, some of the oil and gas companies. Of course, this is basically being sort of, you know, built off the, at the expense of the consumers who've seen prices go up at the uh, at the Bowser and um, at the PowerPoint and um, in the gas pipeline and things like that. But they're all making super profits. They're all sort of lining their pockets with it and sending money back to shareholders and basically sort of thumbing their nose at the sort of the, um, the transition. And um, it's just a shame that... Um, you know, the Labor government doesn't quite have the um, the balls or the gumptions to go and do a windfall tax um, on this industry because um, we could probably do what America does, find good funding to either defray the bills on the consumers because consumers are already being belted this year with extra sort of, you know, fossil fuel costs in, in the house and the car and um, and, and what have you. Um, well, if you don't want to do that, then just sort of put the money into to assist this green energy transition because it's really, really important. It sure is. Um, and, and actually, it's a good segue to... Uh, uh, to my conversation last week with David Leach on Great Solar Business because we talked about this and about some of the issues around the transition in Australia in particular. So our, our conversation was uh, WTF is going on in the energy market and David was an awesome guest and sort of unraveled all the changes that have been going on in the energy market in Australia in the last few months in particular. But I really tried to focus on two things in that conversation. One was, you know, what are the drivers and incentives and what's happening with windfall profits and, you know, do we need to change the way that royalties are paid because state governments are becoming dependent on them and there's a whole whole another episode in that potentially but yeah there's 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 great opportunity to to you know just adjust the dials a little bit to change the way people think about markets and then off off things will go on their own uh, attrition Absolutely, and I found the mute button just in time. Um, it sounds like a good point to um, end part one of this podcast and take a message from one of our sponsors. Solar Insiders is brought to you by Solar Analytics. From just $40 a year, Solar Analytics can help solar owners save an extra $400 by recommending the ideal energy plan. There's no additional hardware required, just extra value. Solar Analytics, it's different. Learn more at solaranalytics.com.au. And of course, we'd like to thank all our sponsors to this podcast, uh, Clenergy, Solar Analytics and Sunwiz. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and back with Nigel Morris from Solar Analytics. Nigel, you've got a few little items under the rubric of good and bad solar. What can you tell us? Yeah, well, a, a good news uh, from Australia's only official manufacturer of solar modules, Tindo Solar down in Adelaide, who've been uh, plugging away down there for years, recently opened up their new line, which uh, I think you've covered, Giles, quite extensively. And, and big news from them, they've just produced um, a, a newer, more powerful solar module than has ever been produced. And I have to say, arguably, uh, most powerful solar module ever produced in Australia. Uh, yeah, 410 watts. I mean, I think there's other companies, international companies have got bigger capacity, significantly bigger capacity. But look, that's a, that's a great um, a great benchmark for, for Tinder and good on them. Um, they've now got a 150 megawatt line down there in South Australia. And it's, it's actually quite interesting. Um, Chris Bowen and I know uh, Renata Egan from the APVI and the University of New South Wales 
talking a lot about, you know, the opportunities for solar manufacturing in Australia. You know, there's a big concern about, you know, with all these mega and multi-mega projects going up in plan for Australia, where do we get those modules from? Where do we get those panels from? Are they all going to come from China? Can we rely on that supply chain? Um, so there's some real thinking about, um, you know, what Australia can do in terms of sort of manufacturing capacities. And I think it's going to be a really interesting space going forward. It is, and, and, and you know, all credit to the team down there at Timbo, Tindo Solar because not only have they built a new factory, got it up and running and have been producing modules, but to actually integrate, you know, every time you make a change on one of those lines, um, it has profound implications and there's, a, there's an enormous amount of work to, you know, go from making a 375 to a 410 or a 420 or, or whatever it may be. So, you know, they've clearly been working really, really hard and great news for everybody um, because they can, um, they can get those into the market and Australia is hungry for solar panels as we know cool next item well going uh, now i'm going to flip from uh, the good solar news to perhaps some a little bit less solar news i'm going to start with some weird solar news because leapton solar has exited australia in quite quite i have to say a little bit bizarre announcement giles um in fact i'm going to quote from it because it says after two years offering one of the cheapest solar panels in the market and servicing, serving as the local partner of Leapton Solar, Leapton Australia has decided to close down our operation permanently. So, you know, um, the, the, the kind of claim to fame was that they were the cheapest in the market, which is, and that they're exiting the market, which really tells a story in itself. Secondly, even more bizarrely, it says Leapton Australia was established after the CC found out that Leapton Solar was supplying 310 what solar modules but labeling as 315 which resulted in a few of its models being delisted so you know they the first part of the sentence is they were the cheapest solar panel in australia but now they've exited the market and that they established an australian entity because the international entity got busted for fraud um and so they created the local entity which had the cheapest panels which is now exited and then the third part just to close it off is that uh, leapton solar has been removed from the Bloomberg Tier 1 list in Q2 2022. And they note that uh, some solar retailers in Australia are still marketing Leapton Solar as Tier 1. And uh, Leapton Solar Australia actually warned consumers that they shouldn't be taking that as... Don't buy our panels. <laughs> we warn you that we've been removed from the Tier 1 list. Uh, it is not a Tier 1 brand as of today. And then just to close it off, a couple of email addresses of some people over in China who people can contact for warranty support. So, you know, what, what this really highlights is a bit of a sorry tale, I have to say, of, you know, really, if you go cheap, 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 and you are a bit fraudulent with what you're doing um, and you end up getting dumped off a tier one list, which is only happens because you haven't been successful in that big part of the world and being successfully financed, then there's clearly clearly a fair bit going on there. So, you know, caveat emptor, consumers and um, particularly solar retailers, if you're out there buying, be very, very careful. Um, and I would suggest it would be certainly worth avoiding Leapton for a while, um, if, if, if not longer. Um, uh, and uh, I did do a bit of a search around on the net, Giles, just before coming on air. And, and there's not heaps of examples of people still promoting the product that I could find online. There was a little bit here and there, but most of it was fairly old and obviously just needs to be tidied up. So... Yeah, I'd uh, I'd have to say I'd be steering away from that. Um, well, look, the best we can probably say about them is at least they put out a press release saying that um, 
Yeah, they put out their own warning. <laughs> they put out their own warning. So that's, uh, I think I think uh, I think we might leave it at that one there, yeah, Nigel. Yeah, oh, yeah, yes, yeah. yeah. I have to say yeah. that's the funkiest warning I've seen yet. Um, but another warning, actually, from uh, the Commissioner of Consumer Affairs down in South Australia, they issued a public warning. Uh, to consumers not to deal with a company who is named, so I'll name them as SA Energy Group Proprietary Limited uh, and, and their general manager. Um, it, so the, according to the, the stories that have been appearing online and on the um, commissioner's website, uh, SA Energy Group received multiple warnings about their licences but consistently failed to do the right thing. Um, there are multiple stories emerging now of them taking fairly large deposits and not turning up to do the jobs, uh, jobs not being completed and the use of unlicensed operators. So uh, once again, did a bit of Googling around and there's certainly no website for SA Energy Group Proprietary Limited that I could find. Um, and uh, pretty uh, pretty minimal um, um, opportunities from what I can see. So it does appear that they've exited the market now. That only happened in the last uh, couple of weeks, uh, Joel. So I, I suspect there might be more uh, deposits or lost deposit stories to emerge, um, but definitely a warning for consumers there from South Australia. Well, good. Well, I mean, yes, good, good to make note of these things. Sad to have to report them. It is. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, what else have we got there out there in um, in, in in Solid Land? Have we have, have, have we um have, have we done our dash? Well, you know, going on holidays for a few days certainly doesn't help you keep in touch with the solar industry. I have to say, but <laughs> I I I had I did have a, It was it was a grandson's first birthday. Yeah, I think that's, that's I think right. That, you know, yeah, it's a good anyway. excuse. But uh, certainly, I had a lot of really exciting conversations last week, um, towards the end of last week, actually, and we made a couple of announcements, which I won't go into today. But next episode. I might bring a couple of little announcements ourselves because we did make a couple of announcements about some very exciting things that are going on in the market. And the general vibe and sense that I'm getting from everyone in the market is that things continue to be strong. Consumer uh, demand continues to um, uh, to plug along very, very nicely. And as you mentioned earlier on, one of the biggest challenges for everybody is getting people. Um, so, um, you know, as long as you can um, lock your teams down and get your staff running, there's plenty of opportunity out there at the moment, it seems. Yeah, yeah. And there's another couple of things that I should mention. There's actually um, been a bit of a survey um, that's gone around just sort of talking about the interest in battery storage. Um, you know, uh, I think oh, there's a very small amount of people who've got rooftop solar have had batteries so far, and there's probably a reason for that. It didn't really make any sort of commercial sense, but now I think people are kind of looking at battery storage, one, because they just want to have that security. Uh, they don't want to be so damn dependent on the grid. They want to be able to sort of keep their lights on if the grid goes down, uh, and they're a little bit pissed off with the utility, so they just want to have that sort of independence anyway, and they might not care so much if um, the numbers don't add up, you know, um, you know, don't give a five-year payback, but might give a 10 or a 12-year payback or something like that. But the other thing is they've kind of been pushed into it now because of all the changes in the tariffs and things like that. So sort of prices have gone up, but tariffs have come down or jumbled around the place or basically sort of been reduced to sort of near nothing under some schemes in the middle of the day. So it's getting quite confusing for people. So I think just people saying, oh, bugger, if I've got solar, I'm just going to stick it in a box and use it in the evening and, um, and have, have a bit of a standby thing. Um, afterwards, so um, so that's really interesting um, to see. Um, and um, and the other thing I just want to note too was just this week we're entering we're entering into springtime, which is um, 
you know, um, pretty good, uh, can be pretty good sun sunny days and relatively low demand, particularly on weekends because there's no air conditioning and all the industries are switched off. So we're going to enter into the territory now where we're going to see sort of record low minimum demands. This is basically the operational demand that the grid operator takes care of. And fascinating to see in Queensland last week, um, record low demand because rooftop solar hit a record high share. I think solar... Rooftop and large-scale solar accounted for 60% or 62% of the um, of grid demand at one stage. That reduced the operational demand to about 3 gigawatts, which is not that low, actually, but basically the pressure it puts up. This is the most coal-dependent state in Australia. And there's this wonderful graph that we actually published, which just shows, one, the level of rooftop solar, and two, all the coal-fired generators basically having to dial right back down to the barest minimum level that they can actually operate. I think your graphs um, actually some... showed below minimum in some cases, didn't they? It was... <laughs> well, it depends which way you looked at it, I think. But um, yeah, exactly. I mean, they were just really, they were kind of struggling and had to withdraw a lot of capacity. Some had a little bit of um, leg room to sort of play with. But yeah, it, was like, it just kind it was of like, shows. Get, get the wheelbarrow and get that coal out of that thing and just put it back on the heat, for goodness sake. <laughs> this isn't helping anybody, right? No, that's right, yeah. So I mean, look, that's going to be really interesting. Of course, the fossil fuel industry will just say, well, this is outrageous. You're ruining our business model and you're ruining our machines because they've got to ramp up and they've got to ramp back down again and bloody hell. Um, but look, it's kind of just forcing the pace of the transition and with a little bit more storage, um, um, we're going to get there. So, and, and look, at and Queensland's kind of interesting, Sunshine State, um, still the most dependent on coal, still with a lower share of renewables, still with a 50% target by 2030 and still with no plan. But um, Energy Minister Mick Brenny apparently is going to sort of fix that in the next month. We're expecting a plan come out in the next sort of four or six weeks. It's going to be fascinating because it'll actually show how they can actually do that. And look, it's probably looking up for Queensland now because, you know, if you go back about a year or two, there's hardly anything brewing in there in terms of large-scale projects. They put a lot of solar in. That kind of cannibalised itself because it's what happened at midday. But now we're starting to see some gigawatt-scale wind projects and like the Bully Creek thing that we talked about earlier in the piece. So there's a lot of quite big projects which going up which will help sort of propel them towards that 50% target. But they do kind of need a plan. Yep. I think it's going to get really exciting and interesting in the next uh, next year or two. It's, uh, things, are, um, things are going to change a lot. Oh, I think so, Nigel. I think so. And, mate, with your permission, I think I'm going to declare that a bit of a wrap for the day. I, I grant permission. You grant permission. You better tell us you had David Leach on last week, a great solar business. What are you coming up next week? Uh, I've got a TBA. I've got two uh, potential candidates. You don't know, do you? No, no I do. I've got two potentials, and everyone keeps juggling dates. So I'm still trying to lock down okay. exactly which one it is. So a surprise guest. Let's call it a surprise a surprise guest. <laughs> Good idea. Okay. And um, and also just check out uh, the Driven Podcast. We've had um, quite a few episodes in the last couple of weeks. Uh, NRMA and um, the uh, the guys at Cooper Bourne from Volkswagen. Um, look, there's been um, there's a heap of things coming. We're going to speak to an Atlassian-backed um, thing, um, ROEV, um, sort of turning sort of um, petrol and diesel utes into, into electric. And there's quite a lot happening in that space. And, of course, the weekly Energy Insiders podcast, too. Um, and we had a great interview this week with um, Helen Haynes, the independent um, MP from Indi, and just on how the role that um, the independents and the Teals and the Greens will play in this new parliament. Um, and um, that's well worth listening to as well. And then finally, thanks to you, Nigel. Thanks, to, of course, to our sponsors, Sunwiz Solar Analytics and Clinergy. 
And thanks to everybody out there, including all the school kids who might be listening to us. And <laughs> some voluntarily, some involuntarily, because they're sitting in the back of the car as they get driven home or to school. But I um, hope you enjoyed anyway, and we'll be back in a fortnight. Bye for now. Solar Insiders was brought to you by Clenergy, the providers of high-quality mounting systems for residential, commercial and utility-scale solar projects. With in-house engineering and projects divisions, Clenergy provides a unique edge with its expert advice. Let Clenergy find the right framework for any solar application. Solar Insiders was also brought to you by SunWiz, Australia's leading service provider for the solar and storage industry. Offering a unique business-wide solution for solar retailers, SunWiz will help you differentiate and automate your business with a tailored implementation. Visit sunwiz.com.au forward slash accelerate and discover how you can boost your profits while working less. Solar Insiders was also brought to you by Solar Analytics. You can now offer Solar Analytics from just $40 per year by connecting it directly to Fronius and SunGrow inverters. No additional hardware is required, just extra value. Solar Analytics, it's different. Learn more at solaranalytics.com.au.